1: How you day? How you day? Ty Roxon here. And today's guest is Karen Jaw Madsen. What a phenomenal guest. We talked about a lot of things. We talked about her background as an expat, her background as an immigrant, and what she does with her book, her amazing book. I read this book in two days, Culture Your Culture, how she really goes into companies to help them define what their organization culture is, why that is so important, and how that plays a role into profits and the growth and development of your people. There's so much to glean in here. This is about an hour um, uh, worth of content, so you can imagine just how much we we dove into. But the big thing that we dove into was her process, which is Dewey, D-O-W-E. Really, 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 really really want you all to think about this, especially if you're someone just starting a startup, how do you create a, a company culture that sustains itself? If you're someone that is already an established company, how can you, as a manager, as a leader, as a colleague, end up um, working to reorganize your company culture so that it's one that retains people and makes people feel more engaged. All that is discussed, please check out the episode. But before we dive into the episode, here's today's sponsor. Now, when it comes to business, you're the boss, and it's tough running the day-to-day and making sure that there is enough money to pay the bills. That's where Plastic comes into play. They can help you keep your business cash flow running smoothly. Plastic is a service that makes it possible to pay bills like rent, tuition, and mortgage payments and even invoices by credit card when you ordinarily wouldn't. Seriously, you can pay virtually any business expense with a credit card from supplies to employers to your commercial lease. And here's the kicker. You're still earning cash back, points, and rewards every time you use Plastic. Once you open a free account, just add a credit card, enter your mortgage or bill details, schedule a payment, and you're done. You're done. Plastic will send a check to your mortgage company or bill servicer and charge the expense to your credit card. Et voila,
2: your rewards are underway.
1: So if you want to take advantage of this, all you need to do is go to plastic.com forward slash nomads. That's P L A S T I Q.com forward slash nomads. That's P L A S T I Q.com forward slash nomads. Go to plastic.com forward slash nomads, and when you sign up and make your first payment up to $1,000, plastic will waive the transaction fee that's p l a s t i q dot com forward slash nomads enjoy the episode
2: in a world where very few people embrace their global identity and seek to understand their neighbors cross-cultural expert tayo Roxon is on a mission to bridge this divide each week, he'll open your mind with insights from some of the global minds in the world. Get ready, take some notes, and learn how to be the best you that you can be.
1: Welcome everybody to another episode of Asked Told by Nomads, and today's guest is Karen Jaw Madsen, someone I have a lot in common with. Now, she is an organizational expert and author of Culture Your Culture, Innovating Experiences at Work. She enjoyed success as a corporate executive before pursuing a portfolio career comprised of research, writing, consulting, teaching, speaking, and creative pursuits. Proven of versatility across multiple industries, Karen developed, led, and implemented numerous organizational initiatives around the globe. She built a reputation as a strategic leader who gets things done. Today, she is an East Coast transplant in Silicon Valley. She betrayed us. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and she's the principal of co-design of work experience. And we're going to be talking about what she means by culture to culture and how to create innovating experiences at work. Welcome to the show.
3: Thank you so much. It's so great to be here.
1: Pleasure is mine. This is, uh, it's it's always interesting. You know, I've been doing this for a long time, but. I was telling you before the show, and yesterday when we when we talked, it's it's always an extra pleasure when you you feel like you can instantly connect with a person. You oh do, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Sounds like you have a lot of similar backgrounds, but also we essentially do the same sort of things with companies. And I'm so interested in, in diving into, um, you know, why you even got started in uh, in this line of work in the first place.
3: Yeah, so many connection points, you know, and I think we share a lot personally and professionally. So it'd be interesting to see where this goes.
1: Absolutely. Well, peel us back and take us to, I guess, your early days. Um, if if uh, Let us know what family life was like and what those defining moments were for you, because I imagine you've had quite the experience.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I am a child of immigrants. My parents came from Taiwan. I was born in the U.S. in New Jersey, in fact. Yeah. And I grew up moving around a lot because of my father's job as a Methodist pastor. And growing up in New Jersey in the 1980s was an interesting time as an Asian American because really in the schools that I ended up in, you're either black or white black or white, and nothing in between, right? So Mm. I didn't see a lot of people uh, that looked like me. Uh, I didn't grow up with a lot of people that looked like me. Uh, But it raised a lot of questions because I observed how my parents were treated um, and how I experienced my education as a child that didn't really quite fit in into any bucket. Um, And I started to pride myself in that, in fact. So when it came to high school – you know, trying to discover my own identity and understand where it comes from. I, you know, I had all these questions growing up is why Why is it that things are the way they are? And that eventually bubbled up into personal identity, which kind of led to my work in college in cultural cultural and ethnic studies. Wow. So this whole theme of culture has been a common thread throughout my life. It, it really had a lot of moments um, and experiences um, seeing discrimination firsthand and um, connecting with other people of color because there wasn't any other people that were just like me. And I had wonderful experiences and connection points with people um, by virtue of the challenges that we dealt with. So um, I'm very grateful for the experiences I've had um, that led me and started my journey to to the work I do today in terms of trying to make a difference in organizations and the cultures within them. We spend so much time at work. And, and uh, it's so important to understand why things are the way they are and how we can manage them for the better.
1: That's, that's, that's incredible. And I, I love ha- asking the guests that question where they take us back to the early days because there's usually a crisis of identity that happens sometimes when you determine who you're going to be. And Absolutely. Yeah, yep. yeah, and so much of life is about, you know, who you are and, and the gap between who you are and who you want to be. And a lot of times... You know, for people that grew up in a similar background the way we did, when you find yourself merged in differences and, and people that look differently from you, it, it, it could go one of many ways where, you know, you end up on, on several ends of the spectrum. But it sounds to me like you, at some point, figured out how to embrace your identity as someone who was... Always going to stick out, and that is a fascinating thing for me because <laughs> a lot of the the listeners they do identify with several cultures, but one of the things that they deal with is the identity crisis and wanting to be mm-hmm. to fit in, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. So, what was different for you?
3: For me, I had to embrace my intersectionality. So, I'm not just a female; I'm also a person of color. You know, I'm, I'm not just a U.S. citizen, but a, ch- a child of immigrants. Uh, there's so many uh, pieces that you can't, you, even if they, those identities come in conflict with each other, you, you somehow have to reconcile the saying oh, I'm both those things and and expect and, and uh, from other people that they give you that space. So what I've always told people in the work I've done around diversity and also, also ethnic identity is you've got to figure that that stuff out for yourself or it's going to be done for you. Right, so right. you've got to you've got to build your identity, know who you are, and figure out who you're going to be, because believe me, there's going to be plenty of other people that are going to try to peg you, and you, you you it's better you peg yourself before you get pegged by other people. So it's yeah. a it's a form of self empowerment in a way. Um, I, I've gotten in I've had conversations um, where I've been told you need to pick one, and I stand at the bridge between places and that and I decided that's the role I'm going to play I'm going to make those connection points Mm. um and so once people tried to push me into one direction I actually resisted and I I give a lot of credit to my upbringing um and and an understanding of what my values were and are today and and what's not going to change no matter what yeah
1: yeah and that's the crazy thing I was saying that we have a lot of things in common and it's the same sort of thing I I had to figure out a way where people would tell me you're not Nigerian enough. You're not this enough. You're not that enough. You sound like this. You don't sound like we don't feel like we can put you in a box. And that was initially frustrating because it wasn't just coming from strangers. It came from like, you know, people in your extended family. Your kids. Yeah. yeah. You have your yeah. kids, your friends. And I was like, it's the same mm-hmm. sort of thing. And when the podcast came about, when I decided to do this, I was like, I have to figure out a way to, to bridge all these cultural divides. I feel like this is essentially what I was placed on earth to do. Um, and it wasn't a mistake that I was always there. And I think that realization of understanding the intersectionality that exists within you and being okay with the fact that it's okay to be multiple things and not necessarily mm-hmm. a binary thing is, is probably a very freeing feeling uh, to have.
3: Yeah, it's it's a form of you know taking back the power in a way, and so that's what makes you special. That's what makes you unique, you know. Um, and and we talk about being able to find our space and creating. If it doesn't exist, we got to create it, you know. Yeah. We got to make room for ourselves because who's gonna be a better advocate than ourselves, right? Right, right? Um And and that's something that I think the social structures around us don't always allow for or want and 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 you have to kind of fight your way through it so it takes a lot of tenacity uh to work through personal identity and then finding our place in this world but it's totally worth it once you get there right
1: as that's 100% correct now yeah. talk to me about that transition you know so now you you've you you had a strong sense of self you started, you decided to start you know get into the work field and your career your 20 year career which is incredible your 20 year career Includes, uh, <laughs> no, includes a lot of things though. But, but you, you've been an expat, independent consultant, HR director. Um, you've led development and, and implementation in many, many, many companies. How did you realize what your career path was going to be like?
3: You know, I, I have had quite an interesting career path. Uh, when I moved, when I graduated from college my first thing was I'm going to become a professor in ethnic studies. That was my thing because we were fighting so hard to have ethnic studies part of the college curriculums. And I wanted to be part of that. Um, But I moved to California the first time uh, to pursue that uh, graduate school. I needed to establish residency first. And so I started working in the nonprofit field and in um, working for journalists of color, which was great. I got exposure to so many wonderful people and, what ended up happening there was somebody caught. I caught somebody's attention, uh, a consultant who pulled me aside and said, hey, I've been watching you, and I know you've got this path you're pursuing on becoming a professor and earning your PhD and all that, but he goes, you can always go back to doing that. I really see you having an impact in organizations. Just give a think on it. And the fact that he took that time to pull me aside and to disrupt my thinking it really took my attention, and I had to think about that. Uh, so when I actually got into grad school on the East Coast, I decided to come back home and uh, pursue work um, outside a nonprofit in the corporate space, and that's how I ended up at Lockheed Martin.
1: Wow, wow. Yeah.
3: And, and that's where it went from there. So once I got to Lockheed Martin, it was a path in HR, and um, I'll tell you all the shifting points because I moved my way up over time and had greater scope of responsibility and met awesome people and did awesome projects along the way. And then I got to the level and, and the, and the role where I realized I didn't want my boss's job. So I was reporting to the CHRO and I got close enough to know that the path I was pursuing was actually not going to be right for me. So that was another turning point And I needed to figure out, what that meant and how I needed to lead my life a little bit differently from there. And that's how I ended up where I am today.
1: You're incredibly self aware. And that's what I'm getting from there because we talk about you in the early stages. You talk about the fact that you came to terms with the idea that you're only in your identity and all that it entails, the intersectionality. And now you talk about rising up to, to pretty much near the top and then you realizing early, you realizing like this is not the job that you want. <laughs> that particular point in people's life, lives is when you know people might be married they've bought a house they bought a mortgage they have kids and they have to decide they know internally there's a voice telling them this doesn't this doesn't work but then the attraction of a higher job uh with a higher salary is too alluring for them to uh to turn down and yep. a lot of people stay yeah Wh- why did you decide to do the opposite
3: um, why did I decide to start all over again? <laughs> yeah,
1: you started all over again, and, and <laughs> then talk to me about that process. But also talk to me about what you learned about yourself and why you felt so called to actually do that.
3: You know, um, I, you know, in such a short time, I tell you it's as if it all happened very quickly, but it really didn't, right? It took me a year to question things, and then another year to figure out when I wanted to move on. So it was really about doing a lot of reflection and trying to incorporate all the learning I had. And, and, and you'll see how some of these personal experiences have influenced my work uh, with Culture Your Culture because, um, you know, I realized that I needed to be iterative in the way I learned. And sometimes, even if I didn't know the answer, I didn't say, okay, I'm going to pursue a portfolio career overnight. I had to iterate on that. I had to reflect and I had to reincorporate in new information to figure out where I'm going. And this self-awareness, which is really trying to look at yourself impartially, you know, uh, trying to to take a look at um, oneself and saying, okay, if I were advising somebody in my situation, what would it what would I do? And you're right, some people don't take that leap. Um, to me, it was more of a prison to stay where I was, yeah. right? To stay the path because it it was it, there was a dissonance in my heart, right? So um, I I did what I did really well, and it didn't feel right anymore. And to keep going to me wasn't going to be honest. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, it was very scary, but I prepared, uh, you know, because it took so long to figure it out, you know, I prepared a nest egg to say, okay, what's going to tie me over until I get reestablished. It included a, a move, another move to cross country. Um, and, and to me, it was more of a risk to stay where I was than to take that leap of faith. Right. Now I got a lot of interesting comments from people as i was making this change i got some oh you're so brave you know (laughs) but i would never do that Uh, but what i've told people since is the reality of our 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 sense of security isn't always what we think it is right so working for a company um in a in a steady job and getting a steady paycheck you know that stuff can be taken away from you overnight so it's not really as secure as people think it is um yeah, and and becoming my own boss, as as scary as it was, it was extremely liber- liberating. You know, I joke to people, I say, you know, I really love my new boss, <laughs> and yeah. I always got along with my bosses. <laughs> uh, but but here here is a situation where the only person I was accountable to was me, and that was probably the most important person I needed to do that for. So that's
1: 100 percent true. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So so it's been quite a journey. I'm still learning through it. Um, and I'm still coming to the full realization of that. Uh, this has only been five years um, long. And, and I would never, I, I, I look back and I said, I wouldn't do anything different. And I want to keep going and seeing where this goes. I, I'm open to the possibilities.
1: That's incredible and so brave. And I love that story. And I know people said that that's a brave thing for you to do. But the reason why, <laughs> I, I understand why people say that. Because people said the same thing to me. It's because of what you said. It's the idea of leaving something that seems to give you a sense of security, the idea of, of you know, the possibility of failing, (laughs) Mm -hmm. of you starting over, of what people will think, you know, of you not, you just going from an expert level to um, a beginning level potentially. All these things run Mm -hmm. through people's minds. But it it ultimately led to an incredible book that I'm almost through, which is Culture Your Culture. Yeah. Talk to me about, the title, Culture Your Culture is such a catchy title, but what are you trying Thanks. to say? <laughs> no, I love it. What are you trying to say to the to the world with this book?
3: Well, the, the, the name of the book is quite intentional, as is uh, the methodology behind it, design of work experience. Uh, culture Your Culture, it really, it, it creates a sense of action. So it's double play on words, as you know. And when we say Culture Your Culture, there's a verb behind that, right? So we always talk about or we, sometimes blame culture as if it's this faraway thing. But it's something that's some, that's quite within our grasp to influence uh, with the right tools. Mm-hmm. And so the, the purpose of this title is to be able to communicate that message, uh, to bring culture that's something a little bit esoteric to people or intangible to them and make it real. Uh, and so I felt like this book needed to be written because there was far more work to be done than what I could do alone. Right. And and it's it's a different way of looking at things. Uh, um, as I was pitching this, it was this is not your typical business book. You know, the whole point of it is innovating experiences at work. So. You know, if you want different results, you got to try different things. That's what I tell people. (laughs) Uh, And and I had something different to say. So that's really why I wrote this book. And it's the same thing. It's the same way I act in meetings. I don't really say anything unless I have something to contribute of value. And I I really felt strongly. We don't write books here for money anymore.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh,
3: But but I have something to say and something to share and something to contribute. and, And that's why I wrote the book.
1: Well, yeah, you do have something to say. You have quite a lot to say. I mean, I mean, if you, you talk about, uh, ways people so can define a company culture and, uh, you also create a concept called Dewey, D-O-W-E, and we're going to dive into that. But I want to, sure. I want to start off with the company culture aspect because the, this is what's going on in the world. I mean, you know this more than anyone. Mm-hmm. Digitalization, globalization. So with digitalization, you got more flexible workplaces, but you also have, you know, people come into contact with people from different parts of the world. Globalization is the same sort of thing. You come into contact with different ways people do businesses, different ideas. And these things can then come, you know, can cause such a disruption if you don't have a defined company culture. And a lot of times what happens with companies, especially fast growing startups, uh, we saw with Uber is they focus so much on the profits that they, they neglect the company culture. And what happens is people aren't happy, but on the outside, it looks like you're making six billion dollars. And, and, and it, their cycle continues to exist. You then, you get the Me Toos, the Me Too movement and, and the times up, mm-hmm. which is a very, very, I'm so happy the movements like that are happening because me these too. Th- yeah, because these things have happened. <laughs> pun <intended. from> so- <laughs> Yeah. Yes. <laughs> me Too pun intended. Because these things have happened. But how do we get leaders and managers to understand how to create a consistent company culture so they don't have to just be making things up as they go, given all the changes that our, our world is currently facing.
3: Yeah, uh, I think part of it is they haven't been paying attention, right? So when these things blow up, it's kind of as if the company was caught unawares, even though us from the outside could see it coming from a million miles away, right? Right. Um, we, we realize now, I mean, there's enough data out there to say culture matters. It has a huge impact on the success or failures in business. Um, the companies that are doing well and are failing at culture, they're making money in spite of themselves and they're losing a lot of potential in their business that they don't realize. Uh, The other thing is that, you know, we talk about let's change things and then just trial and error our way in. it. And it's one thing to be iterative intentionally. It's another thing to be like kind of shooting in the dark as some companies do. Um, So that's why I created this framework. It was really born out of a frustration with how often we raise culture as a huge factor for these companies, after the fact, and yet there was no step-by-step how-to for intentionally creating culture on the front end. So what Dewey does is pulls together what's required to meet this unmet, unmet need.
1: Yeah. Wow. Wow. And yeah. yeah, it brings so it brings business strategies, company values, and culture to life at an organization. How does it work?
3: Yeah. And lots of examples. Yeah. And I can talk about that. But uh, just to finish my last point, there are a lot of examples of companies that do especially well because of their culture, right? Mm. And so um, it's really important to know that when context changes, culture should be at the forefront of what a company does. And you talk about all this disruption, that's constantly happening. So this organizational self-awareness needs to be there when it comes to culture. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. So let me talk about, uh, to answer your other questions <laughs> around the d <DV> model. <laughs> Uh, The the model is a combination of design and change processes enabled by engagement and capability throughout. So these are arranged as a series of five phases, each of them with progressive learning loops of specific activities that really enable a company to design, implement, and sustain culture. So it works at different altitudes, but at at the highest altitude, you can see where these four components come together. And then you really get to know how it works experientially. So there's only so much. I even say this in my writing is there's only so much you can learn about from reading about it. The the true appreciation for how this works is uh, through experience.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and for those listening, we're talking about, um, you know, uh, Karen's process here, which is Dewey and D-O-W-E. But the process com- uh, combines and is comprised of four major components. You just heard her talk about them, design, change, capability, and engagement. Now, design and change processes are enabled by leveraging and building capability and engagement. So it sounds to me like, and reading the book, you can't have one without the other, especially you can't do design without change and there's no capability without the engagement. How do you... Absolutely. There you go. So uh, I'm curious, And, and, and it's also... The interesting thing about your Dewey model is that this is a co uh, co creation, right?
3: Yes, it's a co creation model uh, because oftentimes when major changes happen happen in companies, they're these edicts from above, right? They get pushed down and pushed down poorly. Let's just say, right? Um, and and oftentimes without consideration for where a company is today and where they wanna go. So then everyone's scrambling to figure out how to get there. And it oftentimes comes with a lot of failures along the way as a result, and the loss of really good talent as well. Yeah. Um, And it becomes a distraction to a company, quite frankly, when, you know, sometimes when you implement change poorly, it's almost as if you, it's almost better as if you didn't do it at all, right? Because you end up being worse off than you were beforehand.
1: Yeah, no. I and going through the book, you're such a creative writer. You have these these loops,
3: <laughs> learning loops. Yeah, yes, learning <laughs> loops.
1: And you can see how each of these things are connected. And you have to read read the book to know what I'm saying. But it, it, there's a lot of you know the reason why I said we're like kindred spirits here. Whenever I do a speech, which my signature speech is on connecting across cultures, I do. I have a section where I talk about uh, learning about your environment. And one of the things I talk about is how much I learned from my father as a diplomat to collect and gather information. That is a lot of what you're learning. You talk about that. You always say, figure out a way to encounter new information. How do you get information about what is the actual problem in your company without having your bias affect the information you're collecting?
3: Right. So you become researchers of your own environment. So the design process comes from design thinking, um and and what that kind of creates is a situation where uh, you take the organization and, and I recommend a team is set aside especially to help facilitate the process for the entire organization. Uh, but what that means is then we can become scientists of our, our anthropologists of our own environments, and we look at it in an impartial way to be able to understand the complexities behind it. Um, so you become scientists in a way, right? when you're looking at uh, something as opposed to being pulled into your own biases. So there's a lot of mechanisms in this process that are meant to take the bias out of the process. Uh, decision-making is not based on um, who who is the loudest voice in the room or what is most popular. Decision-making is based on a set of criteria that's directly and derived from data. Wow. So, yeah, I, I, and I know it's really hard to explain this um, from an auditory standpoint, but you know the five phases can give you an idea of what what somebody goes through when they do Dewey. So you understand first. There's learning loops around how do you understand your organization, where you are today, create and learn. How do you design for the future, um, iteratively? Um, how do you make a decision after that? So that decided is the third phase. Okay, once you decide, how do you plan for it? That's the next phase. And then the last phase is implement. And that ends with what you're going to do to sustain it over time. So there's a journey there that I think a lot of people are accustomed to with other changes. Uh, but because they're organized as a series of learning loops, it's iterative. And the framing is around learning. We're going to discover this together. We don't know the answers up front. We're going to figure it out together. We're going to co-create that future because guess what? We're all expected to adopt it, right? So wouldn't it be better if we who are going to be living this are part of creating it?
1: Yeah, yeah. And another thing to remember, something that I love that you said in the book is you talk about how many companies try to do this one-size-fits-all strategy where- Hey, we have a tra- uh, you know not, not a tragedy, something happened, our employer brand was affected, so we're going to do what worked in company X and apply it to us. And you talk about the importance of uh, context and understanding how each of these environments are different. And so that's where your co-creation comes. It could be that that worked for that company, but you won't be able to know for sure until you do the due diligence, which is to collect the information, to then create a team of people that can Work on what you found based on the information and then implement what you, yeah. what you talked about. Um,
3: yeah. I call that the best practice myth. <laughs> best practice. Well,
1: the talk of the, yeah. You, I mean, please go ahead with uh, what that means.
3: Oh, well, the best practice myth comes from everyone's assumption that because it's best practice, it's going to be working successfully for our own organizations, right? So, to your point that you were talking, we all, every organization has its unique context because guess what? We all have different people there, different businesses, different challenges, different cultures, and and so taking a best practice wholesale and, and implementing it. And expecting that it's going to work the same way across organizations is a fallacy. Um, the skill is not about picking which solution um, is going to work so much as the right combination of solutions with a deep understanding of how those are going to work in the mechanisms of the organization. Yeah. So that's the best practice myth is, you know, and there's a lot of books out there around how I did it, right? Yeah. Um, this is how you do culture because this is how my company did it. And there's a lot to be learned out of those, uh, but the, the skill is in translating that to, to our own context, and we can only do that when we understand ourselves.
2: Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Defoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thoroughly. Yeah. Um,
3: and so that, that's what I argue about because I've seen this time and time again. Organizations don't learn, Right. They, they take something and they say, oh, that didn't work, so therefore um, the whole thing is wrong. Well, that's not true. It's about how it's implemented. You know, we have another after-action review, and we keep talking about the same thing going wrong. It, our organization is not learning, right, because learning is defined by change behavior. Yeah. So that's why all of this is organized as a series of learning loops with the intention that we will continue to build upon what we know and work toward that outcome.
1: Yeah, perfect. That's perfectly said. That's that's amazing and I love that. Uh best practice. Oh, thank day. you. <laughs> no, it's true. Yes. I mean it's it, it I mean you we know, looking we can look no shortage to any company in the past 2 right. years alone where you know certain things have happened. If it's even it could go from as big as Facebook to Uber to H&M to you know, uh, companies that we, we've grown to, you know, to love and you hear about these things where,
3: or love to hate. <laughs> yeah.
1: Love to hate. Right. And then you hear about these Pepsi last year. You hear about all these things and you mm-hmm. wonder how those decisions were made. And it's, it's always yeah. interesting when you, when the results come out and it is what you said, they didn't actually co-create these decisions right. got to a certain point and someone <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
1: said, this is a good idea who didn't necessarily have um, a good idea of the whole picture. Serving. Yeah. The full yeah. picture. There you go. Um, yeah. Wow. Well, yeah.
3: Yeah. We're not leveraging the talent of the whole community when that happens.
1: Yeah. But you've worked in corporate environments. I, I can you tell me why that happens? Like, let's look at Pepsi, for example, Pepsi is an okay. amazing company that has been, uh, around for the longest times. Uh, they've been involved <laughs> in cold wars and everything. But then when you put, uh, I forget which Jenner, I think it was Kendall. Uh, as, oh right, yeah was, right, as the face yeah. of black a black you're trying to talk about black lives matter and you're you're doing yeah. that now, yes, intention is great, but then that screams is tone deaf, but, yeah. how do you you know <laughs> this is what I'm saying how does that happen where you're such a reputable company you maybe you've, you haven't had as many of the other um public disasters as other companies have had, but how does that slip yeah. one's mind that that's what I'm always curious about
3: well, you know if it what it boils down to is a lack of empathy, to be honest, right? Yeah. So if there was a full understanding of of Black Lives Matter and, and what that means to the people of that movement and the communities that affects, um, you look at it and you say, that commercial would it never run, right? And the question is, were the voices heard? Because PepsiCo is a very large organization. I'm sure there would have been people in that Organization that might have had a different view of it. But sometimes in organizations, decisions are made by uh, the power granted in someone's role or position or degree of influence granted by role or position, right? right? Yeah. And so the onus is on the leaders in those roles because we know that that's, organizations work hierarchically many times. And so the onus is on the leaders in those organizations to be able to listen and to to not be so arrogant that they wouldn't hear other perspectives or seek other perspectives um, and engage with people who may know more than them, yeah. right? Yeah. That's, that's true leadership, isn't it? Um, yeah. is, is to have a, a dedicated... Every leader needs followers, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> that's true. It's how you determine the... You know, you're an the The strength the leader. of the leadership. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. So it, it, the question is, are organizations learning from this? So a, anytime something bad happens, so the question is, did Pepsi learn from that? Did it did it change their direction? Did it create a, a teaching moment for the organization to say, you know, what were the conditions that created that outcome? And what can we do to intentionally create conditions when that would never happen?
1: Yeah. That's, that's No, I love it. Um, no, yeah, that's, I agree completely. And, okay, to, to move on with the process, engagement, Mm -hmm. employee engagement. It's a big deal. Yes. You touched on it earlier. We work for most of our lives. It's either school or work. And so, (laughs) so (laughs) essentially, ideally, your situation is you should be able to bring uh, at least your whole self to work. And a lot of times, if you're not fully engaged, it affects your productivity and your capability to do your work. And absolutely. Exactly. and, And what that leads to is, What the the success companies that could um, success companies could experience. So, how can companies increase their engagement? Uh, engagement.
3: That's that's why a culture plays such a huge role in engagement, right? Because it's that environment that shapes people's perceptions and behaviors, and so it's in every company's best interest to create those environments, those cultures where people thrive, right? That people are inspired and productive. And, and there's this concept in positive psychology called flow where people just are so immersed and, and inspired in the work that they're doing that they lose track of time, <laughs> right. you know, because they're so passionate about it. And, and the thing is we are coded as humans to want to learn, uh, Want to make a difference that goes across cultures yeah, yeah. and and it 's and it's like a company 's best interest to be able to figure out how to get that combination where how do you set set up the conditions where as many people or the right people are inspired to do their best work because that 's when the company's going to be successful
1: yeah oh, wow. yeah wow yeah and and, and it 's something that leaders can 't uh, forget as they grow. You know, uh, well, that's it, yeah. right? Yeah. So you
3: talk about uh, when you know what's in the news today is Papa John's. Oh, uh, yeah, Papa John's. <laughs> yeah, Papa John's CEO, the founder. You know, I'm guessing he's a different person today than he was when he first founded the company. I, I would. And not. that's okay.
1: Yeah, <laughs> we evolve.
3: But the question is how much self-examination was made around the impact of that founder's personality in the culture of that organization. Because there's such a huge tendency in founder-led organizations to mimic their personality for better or worse.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and, and
3: now we're hearing that there's a toxic culture there that's just coming out now because of what's happened with him. And, you know, this has been going on for years. It didn't happen overnight. This was created. And so when we're perfectly designed, David Cooperwriter says we're perfectly designed for our current results, um, Dewey is here to help you design for different results.
1: <laughs> that's that's right. And what your uh, system does, your framework does, is that it helps diagnose potential problems and um, allows you all to work on ways to create those meaningful experiences, but to make sure that you go from deep motivation to motivation. And with Papa John's, it's… Right. It's such a look, Papa John's. Everyone know I will I watch sports all the time. They've been such a mainstay with the NFL and all these mm-hmm. other companies. You never would have said, I mean, he's a smiley guy or whatever. It's easy for us on the outside to say, Oh, yeah, I well, know. Seems like whatever. <laughs> uh, and then one thing comes out, and then yep, it and happened, a, flood. a snowball effect. This happens with yep. the Me Too movement. This happens with Uber. This happens with all that. And <laughs> that is the, the importance of having a stable culture. Now it would have been a different yes. thing. It would have been a different thing if if he yep. I don't know, did something that was uncharacteristic and people would have said, "No, that's not the case. He's a little right. I mean this was a slip. This is not what, you know, this is just a uh an anomaly." That's what happened but when now, you have a Strong Culture.
3: Right. Yeah. The narrative just reinforces it now, right? Instead of defending him because, you know, it when you don't intentionally manage culture, it's going to manage you. Mm. Right? Mm. So now this company is a victim of its own culture, uh one that was guided by a founder that is no longer there wow. so what do they do now right and, and so instead of allowing that to be a break a situation that breaks a business it, it can be everyone loves a turnaround story so it's a wonderful opportunity for them to forge a new path
1: yeah yeah oh gosh i love this stuff this is <laughs> I, <completely laughs> geek I love out talking with thing. you about it <laughs> Likewise. thank you so much thank you so much for the time um so mistakes we've been talking about mistakes yeah. How can uh, companies then avoid managers and leaders avoid mistakes uh, when they're trying to change something that they offer to the public? You know, how, how do they handle yep. that?
3: Oh, so you mean uh, changes in brand or yeah, uh, well, service like
1: a, yeah, a shift in service or like product offerings? You know, you right. know that, That's tricky.
3: I think the companies that see their their customers as a part of their organization are onto something. Because when they consider them a part of that, then they, they're going to manage it a little bit differently. Um, and so this whole change management, these all best practices or these how-tos on change management, I mean, there's things we know about how how to do change management well. And we do them within our organizations sometimes. This The same people that work for your organizations are also consumers, aren't they? And so – or customers, right, of other, or, or have worked for other companies that were customers. And so it's really important to be able to manage change similarly, uh, engaging, you know, customers on impending changes, getting their input, you know, setting the conditions where they understand the narrative that's being created, you know, um, what's going to be staying the same versus what's changing, because that's the scariest part. And building that psychological safety for people so that, Change is, is something that's welcomed as opposed to feared. And so there, there's a lot of these practices around how do you do change management that oftentimes don't get extended to customers and they should be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Huh
3: <laughs> It's and a little
1: different view, isn't it? No, no, but it's a it's a good it's a good and refreshing view. And it, first of all, this also we're talking about how to, to deal with changes, but you know, you have to have that relationship. But this also goes but something that I read that you said was, we talk about diversity and inclusion. You can recruit said you can recruit until the cows come home for diversity. Yes. But if you don't have the conditions for diversity to thrive, it's going to fall. And so yes. it's all. I'm
3: so frustrated by
1: that. <laughs> no, well, try, look, I, I run a diversity <laughs> inclusion firm, and a lot of what I, the things that I hear is, you know, I hear everything from, um, I don't know where to find people of color yes. or people of talent. That you know it's it's dry, or we hired a few people they didn't stay or uh, or they weren't qualified, and I don't want to do you know, so and I think people turn into like affirmative actions or like try they try to just oh, I'll just find someone that looks <laughs> the part without yes. actually you know Let's
3: fit the quotas and yeah,
1: like it becomes a quota, and I'm like wow you're, you're missing the the complete point and um and it's hard not to, leveraging it, yeah. yeah, but it's hard to explain that to sometimes to people that are only thinking dollars and cents and immediate dollars and cents, like how much money can this make me? How much time is this cost me? And when you, you're not able to see the long-term vision for it, it's it's tough. But it's also tougher when you have a leader who doesn't necessarily share the values of the people they lead. That to me has been the yes. toughest where yes. I know, and I, you know, I'm sure you've experienced this too, where you assess a company, you, you do mm-hmm. all the surveys and everything, they want more, they want to be able to see themselves in leadership positions and the leader is like, what are you talking about? <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and, and it's, it's tough when you have two competing ideals there. And, um, I'm just curious about your experience with those type of, uh, frustrating situations and, and, uh, what you've done in those, those moments.
3: Yeah. Uh, uh you hit the nail on that head in terms of kind of short term game versus long term. Um, because at the end of the day, if you don't know how to leverage diversity, you are going to lose money. <laughs> <laughs> You're yeah. not going to get the benefits out of it, um, and you know, and and there is. We live in an age now that the excuse of ignorance is no longer valid. No one can say that anymore. Yeah, you know, um, and so it's in organizations um, that they need to be able to take a good hard look at themselves culturally to say, are we an environment? where diversity is going to thrive. And if it's not, then what needs to be changed in order to make it that way? Because I can't tell you, I stopped going to diversity events because all it was about was recruiting, recruiting, recruiting.
1: Yeah.
3: And and it was so frustrating for me because especially here in Silicon Valley, you know, just releasing the numbers, which is I love that there's a transparency there now and a willingness to have accountability around it but they're not looking at the full picture if they're not creating those teams uh, where diversity is fully leveraged, right? So you and I are in the business where we get calls, right? And you, we might get a call that says, you know, we keep failing at our diversity initiatives help. Why, 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 is this not working? We've had a lot of starts and stops and now everyone's feeling bitter about it. Yeah. Um, and and one of the first things I do is level set these organizations because what they don't understand is their diversity problem is a cultural problem. So um, culture is, is the kind of the thing that, that's behind everything else, right? Mm-hmm. So you can't just address diversity and not the culture and expect things to work, right? You, you can't just say we need a culture of diversity. It's just culture. It's It's the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. So a culture of safety or, you know, a culture of of lean, whatever you want to call it, but these characteristics that people try to say we need a culture of X, Y, or Z, um, that's an unrealistic expectation because that's really not how life is lived. Culture exists as a whole, right? So you can't just say, I'm going to fix this part of the culture. It's culture, right? So if diversity is a challenge, it's, a, it's also a diversity. It's, a, it's also a culture issue. Right. Right. So when I go into organizations to talk with them about cult diversity, it, it becomes a culture discussion. Uh because they are not setting the environments where uh that culture is receptive to diversity. Yeah. What, intentional or not, right? I know everyone has the best intentions when it comes to diversity, so it's not it's not a judgment on people. They're not bad people as a result, because they're well intentioned, but they maybe don't understand the mechanisms uh, that are influencing their outcomes yeah. and that's why um, what Dewey does is force this deep dive into self-awareness and, and a company has to be open to that in order to do this successfully right so what I tell people is if you gotta the first the first thing is leadership has to be behind it you have to have a business reason for for caring about culture and you have to care about people and if you don't have those then you know this isn't really going to work for them <laughs>
1: 100%. And we're talking to Karen Jaw Madsen, the author of this amazing book called Culture Your Culture. Oh, thank you. It, it, you're welcome. And it's, she, she, when she's talking about how it's really not like your typical business book, it really isn't because it, it's, it's very, very practical. It's not necessarily full of case studies, but it's more about just how you, it's like a, I feel, I liken it to having a relationship with, with someone or making a new friend in a foreign environment. And the person is guiding you, like, hey, here's what you need to watch out for. Here's how you need to do that. And that's exactly what it is. It, it, it's something that can be applicable to many situations, but it gives you agency. I like that. Yeah, yeah. It gives you agency, <laughs> no, I, agency to do what you want.
3: Yeah. And, you know, I've had a lot of international experience where, you know, I've been able to observe, um, you know, how different environments function in, in different national cultures. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're all learners. We're human beings, so we want to learn. We're sponges, you know, and we are our creatures or products of our own experiences. And we all want to be able to do a good job and make a difference. That, that, that I truly believe that, mo- and that 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 crosses cultures. Um, and and it, there's nothing like this to bring a company closer together and there has been research that says if a company's culture is so it, it can be so strong that it becomes more salient than the differences that come from national culture oh, wow. and and that's really important for multinational corporations or companies that do business all around the world, um, is to be able to say, okay, we need to be so overt about this. So that's really clear and everyone understands and has the expectations around it. Um, yeah, but I I really, really, um, uh, hope that this is something that, uh, people can think about adopting because I know it works Yeah, yeah. (laughs) and I think it's so desperately needed. Um, and, and and it's not just in the U.S. I think it's around the world. And, and people have different perceptions of, you know, other topics, like diversity. I, I learned that uh, that's seen very differently, particularly in Europe. Very, very, uh, very, yeah. very. <laughs> exactly. And, and you know, it's so funny being an expat and, and, and being kind of the resident American expert <laughs> because they'd be like, what is what up with this? Yeah. Corporate is pushing this diversity training down to us and – we really don't understand what the big deal is all about, because you know I think we in America don't do a good enough job of explaining ourselves <laughs> to, right, to right. people yeah um
1: yeah, so but
3: I, I really um I think there's a lot to be done in the culture space, and I hope this makes a difference
1: it does no that's why I, I like the the fact that the book doesn't. It doesn't necessarily say this is what you need to do. It's more about telling you why it works and how you can apply it. And, you know, you're giving people say, hey, you got when you form a team, look for these type of people, collect this type of information, take that, yep. gather that. You teach people how to be researchers, how to be learners and how to actually create that habit. And, and that's yeah. if you think of it, I always talk about in our field, the people I study are. You know, I, I study, you know, diplomats, detectives, uh, you know, anthropologists, you know, all these people, psychologists, people that are or sociologists and all those people that have to think and critically think through certain ways before you come up with something to create a framework because you have to have that type of mindset where you're able to be agile, um, mm-hmm. with different environments. And, um, I think sometimes with leaders, you know, we're so taught to like, you know, have this, this result oriented thing to happen immediately. We sometimes forget you know, that we're dealing with different types of people. Uh, and uh, yeah. Right.
3: They're not seeing the forest through the trees clearly. No. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then we're always focused on what's happening next instead of paying attention to what's in front of us. So what's this whole right concept. Now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So this whole concept of being mindful and, and reflecting on our learnings is going to make our future that much better, you know? Yeah. Um, but but we often don't pay attention, and then we're caught unawares. So there's lots of examples um, of lessons learned because people are not paying attention.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, all right. Yeah. Uh, but we're getting ready to wrap up soon. But I, I want to ask <laughs> you. This has been. I can talk all day. But, Me uh, too. <laughs> <laughs> that's good to hear. It's good to hear. But I, I want to talk about. Uh, I want to you know have a portion t- uh, for the skeptics, for example. So. Yes, Um, there are those. Yeah, they are. They are uh, many in our field. And look, there—you know—might be people that feel like this is creating a PC culture, right? Uh, Like this is, oh, what about free speech? I can't, you know, I can't joke. You know, I can't say this, or my she's being way too sensitive, or this is, you know, we're not doing any of that stuff. How does how do you deal with leaders that think that way and? Employees that find themselves in a position where well they they don't want to quit because they need the money I, i've and I'm saying this because i've I've actually witnessed this where mm-hmm. they hate the job they feel like it's maybe it's a misogynist culture or a, a sexist or something that's not uh, in tune with their values, but they know that their CEO or leaders don't think the same way they think i we even mm-hmm. saw this during the elections, regardless of where you fall mm-hmm. um I remember after elections, I got a lot of calls around, I don't know, these people don't know how to work together anymore. <laughs> you know, <laughs> someone said something and, and it's really affecting people's identity because they feel like what's going on. And then you have people saying, you're a snowflake or identity politics. How do you deal mm-hmm. with those things? Because those are outside things that people bring into the workforce, which right. you could say it's ultimately part of who you are. How do you deal with that when there's such a divide?
3: Right. People come with a lot of baggage, don't they? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Well, let, let me break that up into a few different pieces. When I'm working with individuals and they're in that situation where they find themselves in a work environment that is demotivating to them, um, I, I I do two things. Um, I really try to help them to figure out what they can influence within their power. Um, so, Because oftentimes in these situations, uh, there's a sense of powerlessness and, to your point, also a loss of self-esteem. If you're in an environment that is eating at you every day, then there's an impact to your well-being as a result of that. And so the first thing I try to do in those situations is to help somebody to find whatever empowerment they can find in their situations. Um, and, And after that, the second thing would be to ask the question, to provoke them to think it through is, is this company worthy of your talent? Boom. (laughs) 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 because if it's not then why are you giving it to them you know and um and in a lot of it a lot of times it's about helping somebody build the confidence that they need to move on because what i want to do is help them get excited for what's next that this is a learning what they've gone through and it's prepared them for what they're going to do next so i want to get them to that next point as quickly as possible now, when it comes to those that don't get it, let's just say that's a diplomatic, way. <laughs> nicer way of saying it. Uh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that needs to be broken down to um, making them open. So, so t- not trying to piece by piece deconstruct every single bias that they have or misconception is to just work on getting an openness. Because my first question to those people are, how's it working out for you? Hmm. Right? Because chances are it's not. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, And Or there's something wrong, right? That's why they're having the conversation with me. And so to try to get them to that place where they're open and willing to learn, they will be able to pull out those mental models that are getting in their way or those mental blocks, I should say. Yeah. They will self-identify where they've been wrong in their perspective, or where they've had a bias that's changed the way they've seen things. So for me, it's about helping those skeptics get that openness. Now, if the openness is there's no openness to openness, then we can't really help them, right? They have sure. to learn by experience. But if there is a willingness to be open, then then it's then it becomes a a development, a, a capability building to help them be able to identify that for themselves where they have gone wrong, as opposed to me sitting there judging them and telling them you did this wrong, you did that right, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, you want to give them the tools to be able to become the leaders that they always wanted to be.
1: Well said. No, well said. And, and yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes when I have talks with CEOs, and I, I always say, okay, let's look at the scenario. We can all agree that people are unhappy. Um, right. another thing that I, I can say is you probably don't want to fire everyone, even though you might feel like it, because <laughs> there's a lot of that. So what do we do? And then they're like, oh, fine, we got to do this. But it, it's sort of creating that scenario where, okay, you feel this way. Other people feel this way, but there has to be somewhere you can understand how this is detrimental to your ultimate goal, which is your company, mm-hmm. the probability of your company. And, yeah. and you know, it, it's a very delicate thing to do, but, um. Yeah. You know I, well I, yeah go ahead
3: we we've all experienced hardship in our lives that that has no there there's i mean even the wealthiest the most successful people have challenges in their lives right there's that's indiscriminate we all experience hardships now uh, part of our jobs perhaps as change leaders is to um, use that to build uh empathy of other people's situations. Yeah because we've all had hardship now be able to think through you know what it is that that creates why things the way they are the way they are right the the whole culture conversation and the fact that uh, leaders who who come with all this influence are creating and influencing that knowingly or not so but have you you know when it comes to this diversity discussion you know that book so you want to talk about race Mm -hmm. I feel has been so helpful. Um, What's it called again? So you want to talk about race. Oh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I read it. I read it. Yeah, it's a New York
3: Times bestseller. Yeah, I did.
1: I was like, you're so right. I actually did read it. Um, Read it two months ago. Wow, yeah. Um, Don't you
3: think that really helps with the dialogue? I, I really feel like that makes a difference. I mean, for me as a person of color, it finally gave me the words to explain what I'm trying to express sometimes. Yeah. And uh. then for people that are not, you know, are, for others, it's, it's about kind of building that empathy and, and understanding that, these invisible structures, these social constructs are having a huge influence on where we are today collectively as a community.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's by Idrima Olua. And the reason why I resonate with the book is because she's half Nigerian. I'm Nigerian. And Ah. I understood a lot what she was saying, but that book. And also there's a book by Francesca Ramsey called, well, that escalated quickly. It, it also talks about this. And and so, um, you know, it it comes on to what you said earlier. It this this thing is a learning thing. We have to be constantly learning about each other, and we right. we, we can't have this mindset of like, oh, we've learned. We're in a, we're adults now, and we have to stop. That's a fixed mindset, and we have to have a growth mindset yep. because. Um, yep. The world is evolving, and it's just as yeah. counterintuitive. Um, so,
3: and, and the CEOs, unfortunately, you know, they they've gotten so caught up in their own worlds, and it becomes so isolated. It's quite a lonely place to be sometimes. For sure. Um, and you know, I, I've asked a number of CEOs. You know, okay, you've gotten to the pinnacle of your career and where you wanted to go. What's next? And they don't have an answer all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's true. And and so um, I think we play roles where we can help connect to people. And and if if a leader in an organization feels disconnected uh, from their employee body, you know, Dewey is a great way to to bring that bridge to, to bridge that chasm. You know, uh,
1: uh, well, I love it. What a way to, to to end this because we've been talking to the great Karen John Madsen, and uh, we we've, we've I mean we've talked about a lot of different topics. You know, from her identity, uh, embracing her identity, into getting into the field. You know, why she chose entrepreneurship. And Why this book, and the importance of this book, I always end my podcast with my mission statement, which is uh right yeah, now it's framed in the form of a question. This is the reason I do what I do, so Karen, why how rather, how do you use your difference to make a difference?
3: How do I use my difference to make a difference yeah. um i I think you know I could die tomorrow happy <laughs> that i that I finally got this book out. I mean mm-hmm. it was a long and arduous <laughs> journey. Because this is really uh, my attempt. I, you know, I try to make a difference with every person I touch uh, every day. But I know that I can't touch a lot of people in mass. This book is, is a small way that I hope to do that. Um, so I, I think for me, is, it, it's not that I give people anything so much as um, I enable them. I, I want to be that person that makes a difference in their lives because it's, it's opened up new possibilities for them. Right. Um, so it, to me, it's not about what I can get out of it so much as, you know, if I can be by being connected to somebody and, um, and helping them along in their journey, that to me is fulfillment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that being connected to, uh, to somebody and helping them along with their journey. Wow. Well said. This has been a yeah. real, real, real pleasure. Obviously I know that we're going to be talking way much more and beyond the podcast, but
3: yes, i'm looking forward to that too (laughs)
1: looking forward to that as well but but thank you for spending uh, the time with us and really educating us i hope a lot of uh, people um get this book and also pass it on to their co-founders their their colleagues their leaders their friends their, their daughters mothers sons uh there's really a lot of value that can be um you know uh gleaned from this book so thank you so much for coming on the show
3: thank you so much it was wonderful to be here
1: Pleasure's mine and ladies and yeah. gentlemen <laughs> till next time use your difference to make a difference
2: you've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tyoroxon.com